Let's take our Bibles and turn back to the book of Acts as we continue our study of the early church. We're in chapter 16 this morning. And this morning I want to talk about some steps of spiritual obedience. We know as believers, don't we, that we're called to obey the Lord and we're called to walk in His Word. And even though we have moments where uh, we may stray from that, where we may disobey the Word, uh, we never have a doubt as the redeemed children of God that we are called to obey. But I want to make clear this morning at the outset that obedience is never uh, to be clinical. It's never to be obligatory. It's never to be perfunctory. It's never to, to just be, I'm obeying and I'm doing it and God told me to do it and the Bible says to do it, so I'll do it. It's never to be like that. Because of what God has done and because of the wideness of His grace and His mercy, it is the natural response of a heart that has been changed by the Lord, a heart that has been, in the biblical terms, transformed, that we have a new nature, it is then natural to us as believers that we would be obedient. But it even goes a step beyond that. Not only is it the natural response of the person who is redeemed, but it should be the thoughtful response of a heart that is grateful to God. Obedience should flow out of our love for God. It should flow out of our gratitude for what God has done for us. And obedience that doesn't have that intention that, that doesn't have that heart behind it, then just becomes mechanical. And that's exactly what Jesus talked about in, in confronting the Pharisees for who they were. Because the Pharisees were deeply obedient, but there was nothing behind it. They followed the law. They were rigid in their adherence to it, almost, almost uh, strangely so. And yet there was no love for God. There was no heart behind it. There was nothing that flowed out of them that said, we're doing this just because we love the Lord. They did it because it was there. And it's actually possible in our lives to be obedient without any joy or thankfulness. In fact, it's possible to be obedient as a believer and to be angry and to be resentful. If you have any doubt about that, you'll understand it the next time you force your teenager to do what you told them to do. Even though they ignored you and they think you're nuts and they think that you have no right to tell them what to do and they're frustrated and now they have to do it. You know the look that you're going to get, right? You're going to get the rolling of the eyes. You're going to get the dropping of the shoulders and you're going to get that heavy sigh that we all love. <sighs> okay, I'll do it. They kind of shake their head and one eye goes way up here toward their brain. That's obedience, right? But it's ungrateful obedience. It's resentful obedience. It's, it's joyless, mechanical obedience. The Lord doesn't want us to obey like that. He wants us to obey without any attitude. He wants us to take the other extreme and to obey with joy and faith and praise even when it goes against our plans or puts us in a position that's uncomfortable or, or uncertain. Because we have certain confidence in His leading. And we have certain confidence in who he, who he is. And that gives us the incentive. It gives us the motivation to obey. Because we can obey clinically, but we need to obey with a heart of love. Now that's what kept the early church going all throughout Acts. Even though every single day for the church, 
Every single day of the book of Acts was a step of faith. We've talked about this before, but I want you to to think about it again. They had no precedent to follow. They had no uh, manual on starting and developing churches. They had no organization. They had no strategic partnerships. They had no advanced communication where they could say, we're coming to your town to, to do ministry. They had no idea when they went to a town what kind of reception they'd get. They had no financial backing, no fallback, very little public support, and and no resources to hand out. And as they went from town to town and place to place, they usually faced unrelenting opposition. So there was never a day that the church woke up and it was easy. There were no days where they could coast and kind of say, well, we'll just relax today and someone else can do the work. Every single moment was an act of faith. And maybe instead of calling this the Acts of the Apostles, we should call it the Acts of Faith, because that's what this book is. And I'm impressed again and again as we study through this, how completely and utterly dependent they were on the Lord. I don't want you to lose that thought as we go through this book. I don't know if we'll finish it out or whether we'll take a break. I haven't felt leading on that yet. But as you go through this book, don't ever lose sight of the fact that they were completely dependent on the Lord to lead them because it's so contrary to how the American church thinks. It's so contrary to say, Lord, just just show us. In fact, it, it becomes almost uncomfortable to even talk about it. And yet every time we look at them, we see that God showed them the way. And when they trusted and yielded to him, he blessed them with an effective ministry that keeps expanding, keeps reaching thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Now, chapter 16 that we're in this morning signals kind of a new direction. And the gospel leaves Asia Minor and it starts to go into Europe. And that's going to lead to the establishment of most of the churches that we see in the New Testament. Ephesus, Colossae, Philippi, Thessalonica, Rome. We're we're going to see all these churches established as they go on these journeys. And as we see this kind of Uh, change that the Lord is bringing in terms of the shape of the ministry and the scope of the ministry, I want to show some spiritual principles this morning that that will help us to recognize God's guidance and help us to obey Him faithfully. So let's look at the text. Let's read. We've got a little bit to read here, and I'll try to watch my time. I've got too many notes, so you know me. I'll try to be as short as I can. Acts chapter 16, start in verse 1. I I hear your laughter. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek, and he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because the Jews who were in those parts, we know that from the last study, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now when they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mysia, they were trying to get into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. Passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him, and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. 
So putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the day following to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we were staying in the city for some days. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. We sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. When she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. It happened as that we were going to the place of prayer. A slave girl, having a spirit of divination, met us, who was bringing her masters much profit for fortune-telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. When her masters saw that the hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the civil magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs, which is not lawful to us to accept or observe, being Romans. Now, we're introduced in verse 1 to Timothy. And we know Timothy from our studies that he's going to become a valuable ministry asset later on. And we see that the continuation of the preaching of the gospel goes from city to city. And they continue to call the Gentiles away from idolatry and to live according to the word of God and to be in unity with the Jews by their abstinence from sin. We saw that in chapter 15, what had been decided by the Jerusalem Council. Now the church continues to thrive. Believers are added daily. The people are encouraged and strengthened in their faith. But for the first time in the book of Acts, we see in verse 6 that the Spirit of God prevents the ministry from going to certain places. Now, Paul and Silas are eager. They're ready. They want to go. They, they, they sense that they should be going to certain areas, and it would be logical for them to go there. But it says in verse 6, that they were forbidden to go, and it says in verse 7 that the Spirit did not permit them to go. For some reason, they were restrained from going into kind of north-central Asia and into Bithynia and into Mysia, and I'll show you those in a minute. Now, this wasn't because God didn't want the gospel to go to Asia. That would contradict what Jesus told us in the Great Commission, that we're supposed to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And we know from church history that some of the other apostles eventually would go into Asia and Bithynia and Mysia. But Paul would not be the one to do it. Because the Lord wanted him somewhere else. At this point, the whole continent of Europe is untouched. And who better to go there than a Roman citizen a man with an incredible intellect, a man that could debate the philosophers and scholars of Greek and Italy, a man who could do the ministry that was required. He can't go everywhere, so the Lord says, my priority for you is to go to the place where you will be most effective. Now that's hard for us in terms of application to our lives. That's hard for us sometimes to understand and accept. Why does God put us in certain places? Why does God put us in certain situations where we desire something else 
or we feel like we'd be better suited somewhere else, and yet the Lord puts us in a situation. And the problem is we get, and I mean this nicely, we're we're biased by our own feelings, and, and we're limited in our perspective on God's will and God's timing, so it becomes a little bit of a rub to us. In Genesis 15, when God gave Abraham the covenant that he would be uh, that he would make a great nation out of Abraham and he would give them a land to live in. He would, would be their God. He said, this land will be the place where your people reside and, and I'll be over you. I'll watch you. I'll take care of you. But before you get there, I'm going to have your people spend 400 years suffering in a strange land. Now, isn't that strange that God would establish a covenant that was so wonderful and say before it's fully realized, you're going to have to spend four centuries in captivity before you go in. Abraham's standing there, and he's looking over the land. Lot had chosen this portion, and he was selfish, and he got in trouble in Sodom and Gomorrah, and God stands Abraham up on a mountain, and he says, look, north, south, east, and west, this is, this is your land someday, but not yet. Not yet. You don't have it yet. And then here's the reason why I'm going to give you why you can't go in yet. And it's going to seem odd to you, Abraham, but i got to tell you this. Here's, here's why you're not going in yet. Because the sin of the people that live there, the Amorites, it, it's not full yet. They haven't yet reached a certain level of evil and rejection of me that will cause me then to bring my judgment and to move them out so you can move in. So I want to give you this land, but it's going to be delayed because those people have to sin more before I can remove them. Now, what that shows us in an incredible way is the patient mercy of God. He says, I'm not going to discipline them yet. I'm going to give them more chances to turn, but I'm telling you they're not going to. And in my plan and my timing, it's going to be very different than yours. So sometimes when we sense the leading of the Lord, we have to make sure that it really is the leading of the Lord, and then we have to wait on the Lord with with joy and with fervency, anticipating what God is going to do. Now that's what happens here in the text as they go down into Troas for a chapter. And here is the framework in chapter 16 for discernment and obedience. Because when they get to Troas, Paul has a vision. He has a, a dream in the night. He's a strong, uh, persuasive man of God. Paul was very certain in his doctrine and in his dogma and in his, his personality. He was incredibly strong and persuasive. So he has this dream and he sees this man from Macedonia, which is the, the western part of Europe, uh, excuse me, the eastern part of Europe, and he, and he sees this dream and the man cries out and he pleads with Paul and he says, please, Come to Europe. Now, you would think with Paul being so sure of how God works and being so strong in his personality that he would wake up the next morning and he would go to his friends and team members and he would say, time to go. Time to go. This is obvious. The Lord appeared to me and gave me a vision. We're going to the Gentiles. We're going to untapped territory. Everything about this is right. We need to go because it's an obvious step of obedience. And yet, very interestingly, there's this subtle little word in the text that tells us that spiritual obedience is not 
uh, rash. It's not thoughtless. It's not impulsive. In fact, there are three characteristics of obedience that come out in this text in chapter 16 that instruct us how to respond to the leading of the Lord. Notice in verse 10, I want you to notice it's very important. In verse 10, that as Luke narrates the events of the night, that he changes the pronoun that he uses. Now you go, all right, wait a second. I hated ninth grade English class enough. I don't really want to relive it. You're talking about pronouns, really? I mean, come on. But the pronoun change is so important. Because the Spirit doesn't outwardly say what we're about to see, and yet by changing that one word, he changes the meaning of what's going on. So let's reread the verse with the proper names put in. He says, When Paul had seen the vision, immediately he and Silas and Timothy and I, Luke speaking, sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us, not just Paul, to preach the gospel to them. See, that shift from he to we, you can see it right there in verse 10, indicates that this was a discerned conclusion of the group. Paul gets the vision. The vision makes sense. It allows them for new ministry. Every opportunity is there. It's logical that they would do this. But the decision is not made where Paul just says, I got the vision, let's go. The decision is made by them seeking the Lord more. They want to make sure. They want to be confident that this is really from the Lord and this is really God's call to go to a new area. Anytime we receive what we would term to be the leading of the Lord or a call to obedience that is not specified directly by Scripture, we have to take the first step of being sure that it's from Him. Let me say that again. Anytime you get what you believe is a leading of the Lord or a call to obedience that is not directly addressed in Scripture, we have to make sure that it is from Him. Now, that is a significant and important step for them to go to Europe. But as Paul calls them together and tells them about the vision that he had, they seek God's counsel, and he asks them their counsel before they go forward. And it's a very interesting team that they have here. Very diverse in their background and in their abilities. You've got Silas. Silas was a Jew from Jerusalem. You've got Timothy. He's a half-Gentile from Troas. You've got Luke. He's a full Gentile from Antioch. And you've got Paul, who's a Jew and a Roman citizen. These four men, Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, have an unbelievable influence on the advance of the gospel in the first century, both in ministry and in terms of writing, and we read them today. But instead of moving impulsively, instead of looking at their credentials and saying, well, we should be able to discern the will of the Lord, it's obvious God gave it to us. Instead, they concluded that God had called them. The word there in the text means that they laid things out and they put it all together in their mind like a puzzle. What has God told us? What is God leading us to? Why would Europe be key? Why did God prevent us from going into Asia and Bithynia and Mysia? What's going on here? We need to seek the Lord. We need to get direction from Him. See, God has called us to test the spirits 
and to guard our minds against deception. So we need to apply this principle to anything and everything and anyone that claims to have a supernatural aspect to it, like a, like a vision. Sometimes we hear the phrase, well, I, I got a leading from the Lord, or the Lord showed me that this was his will, or maybe we even say that ourselves. And there's nothing wrong with that, as long as we can verify that it's actually true. We have to be very cautious, because the devil is called an angel of light. He is deceptive. He twists scripture. He, he tempts us. He acts like something is a call from the Lord, or something is, 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 is there that God has said we need to do, but actually what it is, is an appeal to our pride and an appeal to our impulses. The devil is very, very tricky. Not to give him any credit this morning, but you know this is true. The devil is highly deceptive. And if he will twist scripture to Jesus Christ in tempting him, he will not be scared of doing it to us. So we have to be on guard. We have to be careful that when somebody says, well, this is of the Lord, or this is a leading of the Lord, or I got a word from the Lord, that's fine, but make sure it's true. And in the same way, we need to be cautious about speaking for the Lord. The Bible says that those who teach Scripture are doubly accountable. I'm doubly accountable this morning for the fact that I'm standing up here trying to teach or at least be open to let the Spirit speak through me. But I'm accountable for every single word I say. Anytime we say, well, this is what the Lord says, we better be extremely cautious because we never want to misspeak for Him and we never want to misrepresent Him in any way. So we don't want to ever, ever charge ahead if God isn't leading us and opening the path. Now, all that to be said, that's not to diminish our zeal. And it's not to diminish the work of the Lord. But like we see here, look back at the text in chapter 16, verse 10. We want to make sure that we know what he wants us to do and what he wants us to say. And that's particularly important in this account because of Paul's desire to evangelize and his desire to go up into Asia Minor with the gospel. Paul wanted to go into the Galatian region. He wanted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit didn't allow it. So God says, I want you to keep walking and get to Troas. If you guys would uh, put up that first picture for me. Uh, Troas was a very important city in the ancient world. You can see here a picture of the harbor. 2000, excuse me, 200 years before Christ, this city right here had about 100,000 people. And it was still so significant into the 3rd century that Constantine thought about making it the capital of the Roman Empire. Uh, go to the next slide, if you would, please. This is looking out through the ruins of the town onto the seaport and, and kind of getting a feel for what it would have looked like in the first century when Paul and Silas were there. If you go to the next slide, please. This is uh, the stadium that they have excavated. Uh, incredible structure. Uh, so this would have been something, this is dates uh, before the first century. So Paul and Silas actually would have seen this. This is something where they actually would have been. Um, so this is, just to get a sense, you can see some of the mountains there. This is to get a sense of what Troas looked like. Mountains on one side and sea on the other. Even more significant than just the fact that it had this beautiful stadium and was on the water was that it was a dividing place. And if you would put up, uh, guys, the, the next slide for me. This 
place was at the divide between Europe and Asia. Now, let me show you this just for a second in case you can't see it. Uh, this map is helpful because it's got colors. Here is Troas right here. This is the edge of Europe, and this is the start of Asia. So you can see its proximity right here was incredibly important as it sat on the Aegean Sea between Europe and Asia. So as they're standing here, they're looking across. Now, that's a long way, so they can't see it. But you get the point that they were getting the sense of a new brand of ministry. If you go to the next slide, please. This is now what is a modern-day map of Europe, and you can see this. Again, Troas is going to be right here. So you see kind of this divide. This is Eastern Europe and into Asia, but really Europe is right here. So Troas sat at a very important strategic place between Asia and Europe. And it's a seacoast that stands at kind of the western edge of Asia and the eastern edge of Europe. And Paul is standing there and he realizes that he's been led there by the Spirit. And now he stands and looks across the water and he sees Greece and the Roman Empire, which has been untapped for the gospel. And yet the foundation, it's the foundation of the Greek and Gentile culture. It's where Gnosticism and philosophy and humanism have all birthed. So you've got Asia and then you've got Europe. And in Europe... There's incredible potential. And there are major cities that he has not thought about visiting. Because remember, they started out on this journey to just visit and refresh the churches that they had already established. But now the Lord's changing that plan and he's telling them to expand. If you go to the next map, please, you can see this. We looked at this map last week. Here are all the cities that are, they're going to go visit on this trip. All these cities over into Macedonia. Corinth and Athens and Thessalonica and Philippi, all these places where they need to go and the gospel needs to expand. That was how the gospel was going to work. So they have a new mission. They have a new calling to go to these places. And this vision, this man of Macedonia, this man of that place that I just highlighted, is standing there saying, come help us. One of the reasons why they knew that was from the Lord was that they had been restrained. One more map for you. They had been restrained from going into certain areas. You got one more map or no? Here we go. Yeah, just give me that one. That's fine. This is Bithynia right here. This is Asia right here. You see, they go from here to here without a stop. Because as they're walking along, they're saying, let's go minister here. And God says, uh-uh. Well, let's go here. No. Let's go up here. No. I don't want you there. I don't want you in Bithynia. I don't want you in Asia. I want you to go to Troas. Because in getting to Troas, I want you to go to Europe. Now, that is not a small detail. The Holy Spirit puts that in because he wants us to understand that this was the new calling. And I have to think that Paul, being as kind of strong as he was, was a little bit frustrated. What do you mean we can't go to Asia? There are cities here that need the gospel. All right, well, fine, we'll go to Bithynia. Nope, you're not going to Bithynia either. Go to Troas. Troas? Troas? Why would we go to Troas? We're walking by people that need Christ. He says, nope, that's where I want you. And the Lord blocks every other path until there's only one option, and the option is confirmed by the vision. He says, cross the Aegean Sea, 
and go preach the word in Europe. And at this point, it's not impulsive. It makes sense, and it's been confirmed, and God says, do it. You know, sometimes we struggle to know if it's of the Lord to move forward. And we have to realize that there's a middle ground between rushing forward impetuously and holding back and taking too much time to analyze. I'm a very analytical person, so I like to be sure of decisions. But sometimes it causes me to hold back. Other times I get excited about something, let's go forward, let's let's get there. There is a beautiful middle ground that God wants us to live in. Don't get ahead of me. Don't rush forward. Don't be impulsive. Don't be irrational. Analyze it. Lay it out like Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke did. But at the same time, don't wait so long that you, inhi- uh, that you hinder what I got, want to do. When you hear the word of God, you hear his call, and you can verify it without overanalyzing because overanalysis sometimes is an excuse for a lack of faith or an unwillingness to obey. Obey. Once we get the word of the Lord, once we know what God says, and this is especially true because it's written for us. Once we see this, we are supposed to act on it. And that's what happens. Look back at verse 10. It says that they immediately sought to go to Macedonia because God had called them to preach the gospel there. This is the second step of obedience, that once we know it's the word of the Lord, we are to immediately submit to it. Hear that, because that sounds, even as I wrote it in my notes, I thought, thank you, Captain Obvious. That's so obvious. And yet, how often in our lives, think about your life, all the times you knew the Lord was calling you to do something, or calling you to stay somewhere, or convicting you to obey Him, and you resisted it, or you didn't. Or God said, do that, and you said, well, let me think about it. I'm really busy, Lord. Let me let me wait. Or you kind of stalled. Oh, I just got, I, I know the Lord can read my thoughts, but maybe he won't read this one. I just got to get comfortable with this idea. I'm not comfortable with it yet. And God goes, I can hear you. We kind of, we kind of stall and say, Lord, well, wait, I know you told me to do this, but I don't, I'm not ready. And God says, yeah, you are. See, this is the key, verse 10 is the key to obeying the Lord. It has to be immediate. Without delay, without question, without complaint, without attitude, without wavering. Obedience that is delayed or postponed is not true obedience. Because inherent in obedience is trust. If God says, do this, he is not only saying, do it because I know what's best and because I'm holy and because I'm God. He's also saying, do it because it proves that you trust me. How could they have gone back to the Lord and with any justification say, we don't think the time's right. In fact, we, we really think we need to backtrack back to Asia and Bithynia, because we missed a lot of places. And Lord, we know you've called us to go, and you've given us a personal, tangible, urgent confirmation to go, but, but we're not ready to go. 
We don't feel equipped. We don't, we don't, we don't have all we need. See, instead of waiting for doors to keep opening, they pressed forward until God closed the doors. And that's a big distinction. Instead of saying, well, God, show us more evidence. How often have we prayed that? Lord, just show me another sign. Lord, just, just another evidence. I, I'm pretty sure this is what you're leading. I just, could you give me another sign? Just, just a little bit more. Oh, thank you, Lord. I just would like a little extra confirmation. And, and, oh, Lord, oh, praise your name. You've given us more confirmation. Could we just have a little bit more confirmation? And God says, how much do you need? I haven't closed the doors, which means the door is open. Now, I've closed doors in Asia. I've closed doors in Mysia. I've closed doors in Bithynia. But I have kept the door open to Europe. And now I want you to go. And as they realize that, they get more and more excited and passionate about it. In fact, when you see that word that says, we sought to go into Macedonia, you see that in verse 10? That word has a secondary meaning besides asking the Lord. It also means that they craved it. So God says, go. They get together. They lay it out on the table. They seek the Lord. And God says, go. And they go, great. Now they're excited. Now they're passionate about it. And now, even though it's a change of plans and it's unfamiliar and it's uncertain, they start to hunger for this new direction that God has given them. And that shows, let's continue on in verse 11 in that middle phrase. It says, they ran a straight course to Samothrace and to Philippi. This is the third step of obedience. The third step of obedience is to obey without variation or distraction. When God says it, verify it. When God says it, do it. And when God says it, don't think about other options. Just go forward. They become hungry for this new ministry that God's called them to. But that doesn't change the fact that they have no idea how hostile or, or, or receptive the people are going to be. Now, Paul has a very interesting track record up to chapter 16. And I knew this, but when I looked at it again, I was like, wow. Because up to this point, between chapter 9 and chapter 16, he had his life threatened right after conversion. He had serious doubt from the disciples that it was real. He faced opposition and persecution. He was stoned to the edge of death. He had arguments with the apostles, and he had a divisive conflict with Barnabas, just in seven chapters. Everywhere this guy went, there was major controversy. So why is Europe going to be any different? Everywhere he's gone, he's caused to stir. In fact, as they go into Europe, which is steeped in secularism and humanism, it's probably going to be worse because he's going to get into some arguments. You think he argued with Barnabas. Wait till he starts to meet some people that are steeped in Gnosticism. I mean, it's going to be ugly. But it's also exciting. Because as they start to sail across the Aegean Sea, they're going into a new area of ministry. And the gospel now is advancing into what is the most progressive part of the world at that time. And it's putting in the heart of the Gentile world in Greece and Italy and Rome. And they can't at this point know just how significant that is or how spiritually hungry Europe was. And we see that. Let's conclude. We see that in these three different accounts of people who are crying out for help. 
They're so desperately hungry for the spiritual truth that when they know it's near, they start to cry out. That's why I call this message the urgent cry. It really has a double meaning. It's a play on words because not only do we see the fervent call of three people, but we also need to understand that those who are desperately in need of spiritual hope and assurance are all around us crying for help. They're urgently looking for some kind of answer, both subtly and overtly, and we need to recognize that and minister to them. They're in this congregation. They're in this hotel. They're in our homes. They're in our work. They're living all around us. They're serving us at restaurants and stores and gas stations. And they put on a good front, and they may act angry and hostile and oppose us. But inside, people that don't know the Lord are crying for help. And they are desperate, and they want answers, and they hope that we won't turn away. And even though they might be putting on a tough facade, they are desperately hoping that we will see their need and help them. Look at the examples of this from the text. The man of Macedonia who cries out and appeals for help. The fact that his identity is nebulous that it's just a man of Macedonia. How did Paul recognize him? Was it the way he dressed? Did he have a big sign that said, I'm from Macedonia on his child? I mean, how does, how does he know? But somehow he recognizes them. But God doesn't say it was John Smith from Macedonia. He just says, a man from Macedonia. So, so what's the big deal? Well, he represents the people of the continent. He is a, a virtual confession of collective spiritual need. And it's a statement that all of the things that the Greek culture had valued so highly and all the things that man had said, we have all these things to offer and we can be our gods, that all of that was worthless, that they were unable to save themselves, that the path to spiritual enlightenment apart from Christ did not get them anywhere because that's always what love of man and worship of man will bring. So this man represents the people and he says, we have no answers. We're misguided. It hasn't worked. Please come help us. And how many know that the gospel is the only source of help? Please help us. Come on. Come over here. We're dying. We have no hope. We've trusted in ourselves and it's gotten us nowhere. Now if Europe needs help, Paul says, then God's called us to preach the gospel. I would pose the same thing to us. If Southeast Wisconsin needs help, and it most certainly does, then God has called us to preach the gospel. God has called us to preach the gospel. And this summer, starting with Harbor Rock Lodge, my goal is that we will have new outreach initiatives as a church, is that we'll get our vision outside these walls, and we'll start to minister locally and globally. We'll start to touch lives all around us, because the time is short, and so many things right now are uncertain and up in the air, and that time may become even more compressed based on the outcome of the next six months. We are in unprecedented times. What will happen in November, the outcome of the election, the crisis in Europe, what's going on with Israel and Iran, the, the decline of money. I mean, you've got to watch this. If the Lord delays, it is going to get very, very interesting. 
And just like Paul standing in Troas, looking across the Aegean and seeing a new era of ministry, church, we have a new era of ministry right before us. And people are crying out and saying, help us. Help us. Then we see quickly Lydia in verse 15. She's the first European to trust Christ. And as her heart is opened up in faith and she and her family are baptized, she urges Paul and the team to stay and disciple her. This is the real proof that a person's walking with the Lord. It doesn't matter how old or how young you are in the faith. It doesn't matter if you've been saved two months or 27 years. No matter how old or young you are in the Lord, there should be a constant hunger for knowledge and growth. And just as the man from Macedonia needed answers, so now Lydia says, I need as a disciple of Christ to learn. I need to grow. I need to mature. I need to advance. I need to be trained on how to minister to other people because God's put a calling on me now that he saved me. This is discipleship. I want to ask you this morning very directly, are you actively and aggressively maturing as a disciple of Jesus Christ or are you stagnant or regressing? Because there's very little middle ground. Are you pressing forward? Are you excited about the Lord? Are you more in love with the Lord today than you were yesterday? Are you advancing your faith? Are you learning? Are, are you growing? Or are you just kind of, ugh? If it's the first, if you're growing, keep moving forward. And if it's the second, get busy. The time is short. I'm not a prophet, but I'm telling you, the time is short. We need to get busy. We need to be maturing and growing and advancing every day. And like Lydia, we need to be saying to the Lord, come into my house and stay. I mean, just teach me, Lord. Change me. Affect me. Move my heart in new directions. Get me out of this stagnation Get me out of this sin that I'm in that I just keep holding on to and know it's wrong, but I just won't get rid of it. Just erase it from me. Take away the urges. Take away the inclinations. Lord, I've got to live for you. That's discipleship. And then last, you've been so patient. Look at verse 17. One more urgent cry. We'll study it more next week. But notice how this evil spirit follows the team. And he says, these are bondservants of the Lord meaning they're permanently connected to Christ. Even the devil recognizes people that are permanently connected to Christ. And he says they're proclaiming the way of salvation. Now, it seems odd that the enemy would admit that, and people disagree about what this text means. But I want to say to you this morning that the spirit-filled power of their ministry is so strong that it can't be offset. And even if the enemy is using this to kind of mock Paul and Silas and create doubt, the fact that this spirit speaks of salvation means that salvation is needed. We need to recognize that even in the distortions and the protests of those who oppose the gospel, they're saying two things. Get the gospel away from me because it's exposing me. And on the other hand, bring it near to me because I need it. People that stand against the gospel are saying two things. They only think of one. Get that away from me. I don't like how it makes me feel. But subtly, down deep, they're saying, please tell me more. Please 
show me more. Never forget that people are crying for help and that they're ready to respond. It's interesting that this city where people cry out, where we'll see next week, Paul is again opposed. Philippi. It's going to become the home of the most humble, faithful, godly church that's ever established in Europe. At this church where there's opposition, Paul will someday write to them and say, many walk as enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. But Philippi, we put no confidence in ourselves. It's all lost for the sake of knowing Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven, for which we also wait for our Savior, Jesus Christ. So stand firm in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Be anxious for nothing, but pray with thanksgiving. Think only on what is pure and holy, and be content in all things. When we cry out to the Lord, that is what God produces. And there's nothing better, right? There is nothing better than what God does. Now, knowing that people need that, it is our job to go minister to them. This summer, we're going to see people all around us that are urgently crying for help. We need to minister to them. And we need to show them Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, there's so much here for us that digest and we ask you by your spirit to teach us and impress upon our hearts what you would have us to know. Father, I pray like Paul standing in Troas that we would look out on this area and we would look out on what's beyond us and you would show us that there are new avenues of opportunity and new opportunities for ministry to take the gospel to people and to minister to those who are hurting and in need and crying out for help. Lord, the cry is urgent, and we ask you to reveal it to us, and then to give us boldness. Lord, I pray for a great harvest this summer. A great harvest of people who would turn their lives to Christ, that would rejoice in the hope of salvation that we all have, that we know is so wonderful, where we can say, glory, hallelujah, to the risen King, because that's where our confidence is. So Lord, lead us, confirm what you teach us, and then guide us to move forward immediately, without hesitation, without complaint, to serve you. We thank you and praise you, and we love you in Jesus' name.